Today we continue a series of discussions about the basics of Marxism, a method for understanding and changing the world used by many of the great organizers, activists, scholars, and revolutionaries in modern history. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week, thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's r-d-w-o-l-f-f.com. Richard Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Richard, here it is from Bloomberg News. Unprecedented spike in U.S. evictions looming as ban expires. Federal moratorium is slated to go away at the end of July Housing experts see issues arising in Sunbelt Southeast. Here's from the article. A federal ban on evictions is set to expire at the end of July, and this time it's unlikely to be extended, putting millions of renters at risk. The moratorium has been in place through much of the pandemic, but it's part of a wave of emergency programs ending even as the Delta variant fuels rising COVID-19 cases in the U.S. While some states, including California and New York, have their own eviction bans, the expiration of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention moratorium has housing advocates worried about a surge in landlords forcing out tenants who have fallen behind on rent. Now, Richard, Congress allocated $47 billion in assistance, but so far states and local jurisdictions have been slow to distribute the funds. Now, again, this $47 billion was to people so that they could pay their landlords. What some of the housing experts are assuming is an eviction crisis unlike anything that has happened in recent decades. Again, you would think that the government, just on the basis of wanting to maintain social stability, not to mention you know what's ethical or moral or right, but just social stability would not let this happen, but it appears that it will happen. Yeah, there are many things 
that fall under that category. Many things that are being allowed to happen, which are very, very, very bad for social stability, and you might have thought that would prevent them from happening. Let me give you a couple of examples before we get into this housing issue. Over the last two or three weeks, we were treated to a spectacle. There's no other word for it. Two or three of the richest people in the world decided to spend huge amounts of money having an amusement, namely a race to see who could get into a rocket ship and go up in the air and spend a few minutes or hours and then come back. This was lots of fun, and this would allow you to get dressed up in a funny outfit and get a lot of media attention. The money spent on that, the billionaire's enjoyment for the afternoon, could have vaccinated, I don't know how many millions in Africa, so that they would be safe, so that they wouldn't die, so that Africa would not be an incubator for new variants of this disease that will, in fact, threaten us all. I mean, the irrationality here, the, the grotesquerie of what we are presented with had the predictable outcome. Lots of commentators, even in mainstream media, could not but notice the difference between the amusements of the billionaires on the one hand and the unmet social needs screaming into this society. This made a lot of people very uncomfortable. This was not good for social stability. But it went ahead, and we're going to have more of them. It's like the inequality in the United States, which is off the chart. 40, 50 years ago, the United States was less unequal than the countries of Western Europe. Now it is very much more unequal, and there's no end in sight. Even during the pandemic, when we were, quote unquote, all going to get through this together, that's not what we did at all. The rich got richer, and everybody else had a very hard year and a half or longer. This is not working together. This is not good for social cohesion, social stability, or anything like it. It's almost as if we have a corporate system and watch them now as the corporations are undoing the political support for Biden's very modest effort to tax them a bit more. The corporations are on a tear. There's no limit to what we can do to make more money. Wealthy people, there's no limit on what we can do. We're not going to be held back by any consideration about social stability. And you know what this reminds me of? the collapse of every great society, every empire in the history of the human race. This is when you collapse, when you stop understanding your own limits. When you think there are no limits, you can just keep doing what you've been doing, and then you discover, of course, at a certain point, the holiday and the game is over, And which is, by the way, what I think we are experiencing as a society. Now let me get to the evictions. This is the same thing. You postpone them now several times, the ending of the ban on evictions, because enough people understood you're going to threaten something fundamental in this society, namely that people have shelter, food, clothing, and shelter. Those are the three great things by which you measure an economic system. You have a successful economic system if it provides people with food, clothing, and shelter as a basic minimum. 
then, of course, education and health care and the other things that make life decent. But food, clothing, and shelter is the irreducible. People die, get sick, and everything else if they had at least these basics. In order to provide people with housing in our society, in a capitalist society, you have to take care of two things, the supply and the demand. In other words, there has to be housing that people can afford, and there have to be incomes people can earn that enable them to afford what the housing costs. Those are it. You've got to do that one way or another. This society, and we're going to see that at the end of this week when this moratorium is over, if indeed that's what they do and don't have a last-minute, 11th-hour kind of theater around. But if they let it lapse, you're going to see a society that is telling the world, not just the millions who will leave their homes and don't want to, but you're going to be telling the world that the United States has shrunk to the point where for millions of its citizens— it cannot provide basic shelter. It can't do it. It either doesn't give them the income with which to buy it, or it doesn't charge for the housing something that the people can afford to pay. Those are the two requirements in capitalism, and this system is going to dramatically show the world that it can't get the job done. This is as profound, probably more profound, a demonstration of the decline of the United States, as are the withdrawals of the military from Afghanistan and now also Iraq. You can call them whatever you want. They are defeats. And as that sinks in, the defeat in the struggle to provide housing for your people as a basic requirement of life, will be shouting its significance, its historic significance in the decline of the American empire. Richard, Karl Marx's theory of rent is considered to be one of the more difficult parts of his economic theory. And he wrote, of course, in Capital about ground rent and mineral rent, and of course, the ground rent being land rent. Let's just talk about this phenomena of rent and what it really, really, truly represents in society. I mean, if we transformed our economy to a socialist economy, if we reorganized the economy on a socialist basis, if people's homes belong to them and not to the bank to which they pay mortgage for 30 years or not to a landlord who they pay rent to from you know every month or so if we had that kind of a system rent would essentially end when you think about landlords the lords of the land obviously that's a term that comes from an earlier pre-capitalist social system, that would be when we had lords of the land, that would be the system of feudalism, when the majority of people were land slaves or serfs. But let's just talk about the function of rent in capitalism and how, in its essence, rent is a reflection not of the property, but of a social relationship. Because obviously, if we had a socialist, not a capitalist economy, 
the buildings that we live in would still be there. We'd still be living in them. But what would have changed is the social relationships on which we have the opportunity, I'm using air quotes, to actually reside in the places that we do live. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about Marx's theory because it will be immediately pertinent. Marx came after a very important British economist named David Ricardo, the person who developed, most importantly, early theories of rent. And the increasingly interesting thing for people to remember if you bother to learn this stuff is that David Ricardo loved capitalism, but he hated the landlords. And the reason he hated the landlords, which was active in his shaping of the theory of rent I'm about to summarize for you, is that he felt that landlords were a drag on capitalism. They held back the growth of the economic system, its capacity to produce goods and services. And here is his argument in a nutshell. Capitalists and workers were the two active agents in economic development, growth, output, well-being, standards of living. They should get the money, the one for doing the work and the other one for being the director, the idea person, whatever you want to call it, He liked capitalism, so he always thought that capitalists were an important group. But landlords, for him, useless. First, he pointed out, landlords didn't produce the land that they are the lord of. God, in his mind, he was religious, did all that. And it was outrageous that there would be a subgroup of people in the community taking huge amounts of wealth out of the system, i.e. getting paid rent, And that that wealth, instead of being given to workers who do work or to capitalists who build industry, was being used in frivolous country consumption by these landlords. He hated them. He didn't want them. He was critical of them. Very, very famous. Marx loved this because what he loved to point out was, you're right, Mr. Ricardo, the landlords contribute nothing. They just take out of the wealth produced by others, something because they own the land which they didn't create or put there. And the point Marx wanted to make was the same applies to the capitalist. And of course, that's where he differed from Ricardo, because he says, what does the capitalist provide? He provides the tools, the equipment, the machines. But let's be honest, Marx asks us, who produced those The capitalists? Not at all. The workers. So what we have is a system in which the workers of the past produce the capital, which the capitalists took, now give it back to the current generation of workers to work with, and then they'll keep the profit out of that as well. They really have no more justification for the money they take out of the system than the landlords did was a very powerful argument, which is why Marxism spread around the world as quickly historically as it did over the last couple of centuries. So for Marx, the capitalists, like the worker, don't have any justification for pulling the wealth out of the society that is ultimately the creation of the working class, past and present. Well, if you look at it that way, obviously, then there is no justification to say to large sections of the working class that produced 
the houses we live in, the apartments we live in, that cultivated the land, converted it from woods and rocks into level territory we can build our housing on, people who continue to work for a living, to deny them access to the housing that their forebears built, it compounds the outrage of landlord and capitalist with a new outrage of literally disenfranchising the working class and their children from enjoying a small part of the fruits of their labor, namely the housing stock in our society. And when you look at the United States today and you see that the statistics show us that a significant large portion of the housing from which people are being evicted is being snapped up by rich investors using uh, hedge funds and equity funds and so forth to convert home ownership into rental ownership and to make the rental business a mass industry and then, like every other corporation these days, simply squeezing as much profit out of it as they can, jacking up the rents record highs, jacking up house pricing. And so the vast majority of people with limited means, yet again, squeezing those who can least afford it and literally not stopping when you put people out on the street so that in this super rich country, we have the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of homeless people scattered across our country. I mean, it's a spectacle that makes you shake your head because if, as you well put it, Brian, if social cohesion, social stability were even in the backs of the minds of the capitalists driving all of this, it's obviously playing no role. They're roaring ahead and they will continue to do so until they hit that inevitable stone wall when the mass of people say enough. I never thought I would see it go as far as it already has. So at this point, as more and more people understand, all bets are off. The United States seems bent on exploding itself, and we're watching the process. Indeed. And, you know, it seems to me as an organizing tactic, and this isn't true just now. I mean, it was certainly true in the 1930s. You live in New York City. I lived for a long time on the Lower East Side and then in Chelsea. And as a matter of fact, when I moved to Chelsea, it was still an affordable neighborhood on the west side of the lower part of Manhattan because the left, the tenants union and tenants organizations were so strong and rent control was so strong in New York that New York City was actually an affordable place to live, which is absolutely not the case now. Right. And right. and so the left made housing and organizing around housing and rent control a mass movement. And it, of course, it drew in people regardless of whether they voted Republican or Democrat or socialist or independent. If you were a worker and you had to rent in order to live, the socialist-led campaigns for rent control and affordable housing would obviously be very popular, and they were very, very popular. We have an office here in Washington, D.C. called the Justice Center, where we do a lot of political organizing right below Howard University at U Street and Georgia Avenue. And there's a lot of gentrification. Ten years ago, 
The neighborhood was almost entirely African-American. Now, at nighttime at least, it's almost all white people. The whole neighborhood, like most of Washington, has been gentrified. And then some of the places that the newcomers you know, go to hang out, like there's a very, very, very popular cidery. It serves hard cider, very popular. The cider comes from the Basque country or based on that. The place was filled up. It's every day filled up with patrons. They just shut down because in the last couple of weeks, the landlord, I don't know what, doubled the rent or increased it so hugely that, you know, the business can't survive. So even though they as a capitalist, small capitalist business were thriving, the landlord ultimately rules the day. And going back again, you know, the issue of housing as a tactic, as a catalyst as a point of unity for a broader mass movement. It seems to me, especially with this wave of evictions, yeah, the time has come. Yeah, I think I've mentioned on a previous program, but it's so appropriate right now. Let me briefly repeat. The most successful urban housing arrangement in Europe, and perhaps in the world right now, is the city of Vienna in Austria, the capital of Austria. Half, 50% of the apartments in Vienna are publicly owned and controlled by the people who live in them. That was created about a century ago when socialists won office as the mayor and the city council of Vienna and decided to deal with the housing problem of capitalism, which was exactly then as it is now as we talk about evictions and homeless people and gentrification and basically allowing the market to force huge numbers of people into horrible living conditions or utter homelessness. So they created a system that works like this. The people who live in the houses run them. The city owns them, either by itself, that's about a quarter, or in partnership with privates, that's another quarter, but under the control of the government. You cannot charge rent more than 25% of a person's income, no matter what that income is, and you cannot evict. You have to find other solutions if people cannot pay the one quarter maximum of their income. That is a completely different system. And it has been so successful that I invite anyone hearing me, go to Vienna if you possibly can, ask to be shown some of the public housing. You will see beautiful apartment complexes impeccably maintained. And that's the typical one, not the exceptional one. And it's a very successful system. When other political parties became the leaders of Vienna over the last century, including far right wingers, when they even attempted to say that they might do something to roll this back, half of the people of Vienna told them, you take one step in this direction and we will vote you out of office tomorrow morning. And none of them could. And that's why it's a socialist housing system today for half the people of that city as it was 100 years ago when this was set up. So it's feasible, it's doable, it's durable, and there are no 
comparable spectacles of homeless people wandering the streets of Vienna the way you will see in Los Angeles, New York, and countless other places in a country much richer than Austria ever was. Richard, I want to move now away from housing as we're coming to the close here and just raise another point that we've talked about with you and you've talked a great deal about, and it's so important, which is, of course, the length of the workday. How many hours do workers work? And as you pointed out in the last episode, the struggle to shorten the work day and the work week has always been primary. In the Russian Revolution in 1917, when the Bolsheviks were in between the February Revolution and what became the October Revolution or the Socialist Revolution, the demands were land, bread, and peace. They weren't, you know, for communism and socialism. It was land, bread, and peace. But the principal demands of the three demands for the Bolsheviks were considered the left wing was an eight-hour workday for workers. It was that essential for their base of workers to be able to work a shorter work day and a shorter work week. Here's a news development, something that's breaking. This is not in 1917. This is 2021, and it's not in Petrograd or St. Petersburg. It's in Topeka, Kansas. Hundreds of Frito-Lay workers on strike in Topeka, citing forced overtime and 84-hour work weeks. The snack maker says it addresses the concerns raised by the union in its latest contract offer, which included a 60-hour weekly cap. Anyway, Richard, the workers have done a 19-day-long strike, a 19-day-long strike, and they have won. Pepsi, which owns Frito-Lays and which is making record profits from Frito-Lays, especially in the last quarter, increased their work week to 84 hours. People were working 12-hour shifts with only eight hours in between their next shift very frequently, and they were literally working seven days a week. So the victory of this hard-fought strike is Pepsi, Pepsi Co., Pepsi Company, has agreed that the work week will only be six days. Now, for anybody who's done worker organizing, you might think, well, that doesn't seem like that great. They still have to work 60 hours and they're still working six days a week. But if you're on the job and you're working 84 hours and you can now work 60 hours, it's a pretty big victory, even though it seems like obviously not enough. So it's not something to take lightly. This was a heroic struggle of these workers. But here we are, Richard, 2021. Obviously, this is a violation of labor law. I don't know how the company exactly got around labor law. But what happened is after three quarters of negative growth, as the economy was picking up, a lot of people wanted to start eating Frito-Lays, apparently. And so the company just quote, win overtime on steroids. But anyway, 84-hour work week here in the United States, the, quote, richest country in the world. Well, you know, since this is supposed to be about Marx, let me remind people, early in volume one of Capital, Marx's major work and the volume that he wrote literally himself, there's an entire chapter devoted to the length of the working day. And Marx's point there was to say, that capitalism is a system in which the struggle over the length of the working day 
is a built-in perpetual problem. doesn't go away. It isn't solved. If you study British history, the history of capitalism in Britain since the 18th century, it can be chopped up into pieces. The struggle for a shorter day than 16 hours later, the struggle for a 14-hour day, for a 12-hour day, for a 10-hour day, and then finally for the 8-hour day. That's where May Day comes from, when the struggle for the eight-hour day here in the United States culminated in a demonstration in Chicago and so on. And now we see it. It never stops. It's the employer coming to you quietly and saying, look, John, or look, Mary, we're only supposed to hire you for, you know, pay you for eight hours a day, but we really need you to do some extra work, two more hours, four more hours. Now, of course, you can say no, but the look in the employer's eye when he says that lets you know he's not going to like you if you say no. He's not going to lean towards you. He's not going to allow you a sick day if you need it or to take care of your grandma when she needs it. So you better do it. And so you end up doing it. And then there's another lean on you the next month when the employer wants to make more profits, you know, to make up for what he lost during the pandemic. And so he leans on you again with the same meaning meaningful glance. And so you end up with 84 hours a week or maybe 60 hours a week. And remember, the employer saves a lot of money if instead of hiring another worker to do the work, he can get more out of you. Paying you time and a half is a lot less than paying regular salary that would be double to another human being. And so you're being ripped off as an individual, as a member of the working class, but you're always subjected to this. Young people these days graduating from college and becoming young lawyers, young architects, young businesses are normally squeezed 60, 70, 80 hours a week, basically being told, you don't do the extra, you won't get promoted. No one has to say it. Everybody understands it the length of the working day, getting more out of workers without paying for it. The only thing better than that is the hustle these days called internship. When you can say to the person, the young person desperate for work, we'll give you a job. We're not going to pay you anything because you can now put on your resume that you had a job with us and that'll help you get a job in the future. And that's your salary. We get your labor for free. It's using every need of the mass of the people to squeeze more profit out of them. And it is done with a level of intensity now that, not to beat this dead horse, but let me say it again, this is a system bent on what will emerge as self-destruction. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We will be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. 
connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 